Well, hey there, EOC. It is Matt and Harold today. Brody isn't here. I'm not sure where he is, actually. And in my sorrow, I have written something, a poem called, Oh, Where Is My Brody? And I thought I'd read it to you to express my sadness and some of the things that I'm feeling in this space of abandonment. Here it is. Oh, where is my Brody? Oh, where has he gone? He's left me all lonesome. He's left me forlorn. Oh, where is my Brody? Where has he been? What could possibly draw him away from his twin? Perhaps he's forgotten he said he'd be here. Perhaps he's gone rotten and neglected his peer. Maybe he's scared he won't make the grade. Maybe he's grumpy that he doesn't get paid. Whatever the reason, he's left me to slog through the rest of this podcast alone with just Harold the Heresy Hog. I don't know how today's going to go without him. There won't be much bouncing around, presumably. Less jokes, or at least less funny ones. But we're going to see how we go. So, with that testy pop in mind, uh, quick reminder, we're doing two things as is usual. We're leading the group, and then we're teaching the text. Uh, in today's leading the group, we're going to have a bit of a review of what I've seen this last week gone. And then we're going to look at uh, consolidating uh, along the way during the study. Uh, and then, of course, we'll jump into Hebrews chapter 8 and 9, which is a big chap, uh, chunk of text. And that's why we're thinking about consolidating and summarizing along the way. Uh, so how about I pray, and then we'll jump straight into it. Now, Father in heaven, thank you so much uh, for the opportunity now to think a bit more about Hebrews and what it means for us. I pray, too, that we will learn more and more about how to lead the group in such a way that we can bring your truth to bear in their lives and see them conformed to the image of your Son. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Excellent. Well, let's have a look at leading the group. Um, a quick review. Last week we talked about creating tension, uh, that method by which we got people engaged and thinking about how uh, they can resolve some of the things in the text or resolve some of the things that you yourselves have created in writing the study. Uh, in other words, we wanted to, to, to pull them in in such a way that they just had to needle their way through and kind of figure out exactly what was going on. Uh, and if you remember, the idea was to build the tension uh, to a point where at the end of the study you can release it. So similarly, we tried to do it in the podcast last week with Batman. As a matter of fact, that's the real reason Brody isn't back, because he did that lame, I'm Batman, at the end of the last podcast. I was mortified, but I had no choice but to put it up because I didn't know how to edit audio. Um, regardless of that, though, when we looked at the tension in our studies this week, uh, I saw one of two things. Um, I either saw the tension not being built, or I didn't see it released. Uh, and so in other words, what happened was it was either a flat study, or it was a confusing study. Uh, it was flat if we didn't build the tension. And a few things that I observed some people do, which um, kind of took it out um, and, and didn't allow them to build it at all, was the fact that uh, some of the things that we had put in place in the study structure itself, like only reading the first 10 verses, um, or not giving feedback or an introduction to the study in context, so in other words, we intentionally removed some information, some of you added that back in. 
And so it made it easier for people to answer, or at least it made it less pressing to be answered. And so what happened was the tension didn't build. Um, for those of you who did do that, um, and I saw some good attempts too of asking questions to try and turn up the heat, I just want to keep encouraging you to keep working hard at building that devil's advocate skill that we talked about last week. Um, in other words, trying to find ways to, to just be tongue-in-cheek or, or, or naughty. I'm trying to think of the, the, the right word for it. But in other words, have a subtle yet loving glee in making people squirm or react. Um, maybe that just came naturally to me, but for some of you, you might need to work on it because you actually love people and are care caring for them. Uh, but in other words, just trying to think of ways that you can ask provocative questions or questions that are clearly wrong, but uh, force people to come back rather than just going, eh, it doesn't matter. So that's building the tension. Um, sometimes it wasn't released. Uh, and I saw this as well. The right questions were asked, like the confusion about Melchizedek was brought up and it was continually brought up. Uh, but we got to the end of the study uh, and instead of going back to Melchizedek, he just kind of disappeared like he did in the original Genesis narrative. Uh, and so we never got any closure on what it was that he was there for. We kind of got that, you know, Jesus was in the order of Melchizedek and so Jesus therefore is better than the Levitical priests. But we didn't really join the dots and see that it was Melchizedek's uh, never-ending life uh, that was the basis of his priesthood that Jesus then became a part of. And so Melchizedek becomes very significant because in establishing that he is better than Abraham, we can then make the jump to say that Jesus is better than the Levitical priests. As it was, we didn't make that connection much, I don't think. Instead, what we did was just conclude that Jesus, because he lives forever and the Levites die, means that he's better. That's a completely correct uh, conclusion. Uh, but again, the richness of the text and, and Jesus' relation to Melchizedek, I don't think was uh, entirely brought out. And so what that meant is instead of attention held and then released, it was attention held and then kind of fizzled out like a helium balloon that you just let sit for three weeks until it's floppy and wrinkly like your grandma. Uh, so that's something that I observed about tension. Um, the other thing I observed about uh, this week was application. And my reflection, I was talking to one of you about this as well, I think it was Ando, the, the, the application question that we gave you wasn't particularly good. Uh, and that's our bad. Um, as I've said before, application is, I think, the hardest thing for me to do. It's the place where I struggle. And so one of my reflections with Ando was um, that when we ask application, let's try and make it real. So instead of asking something along the lines of um, why do we need a priest um, or why do we need Jesus as high priest, which, by the way, is the right big question, uh, but it wasn't the right way to ask it. Uh, clinically, it makes perfect sense because the issue is that we need a high priest like Jesus. But I'm thinking practically, how do you ask that in a way that's helpful? And I came up with this idea of just, we've got to keep making it real. And this is something that I'm learning so you can learn it with me. Um, something along the lines of not so much, why do you need Jesus as a priest? But uh, think of uh, a sin that you keep committing or think of something that you, you really, really regret doing and feel guilty over. Um, if you were under the Levitical priesthood, would you feel comforted? Um, what is it about what we learn in Hebrews 7 that means that um, we wouldn't? What is it about Hebrews 7 that might give us hope? So thinking about how you can actually apply it and give it traction on the ground. 
is something to think about and something I think we're going to try and do this week in Hebrews 8 to 9. Uh, so those are just some reflections. Let's shift now. I want to think about um, summarizing or consolidating. Uh, basically, what I mean by that is along the way, making sure that people are keeping pace and people are on board and on the same page. Now, this book we keep mentioning to you, Growth Groups, uh, by Colin Marshall, published by Matthias Media, has a really lovely illustration in there. Uh, instead of landing the plane, going on a, on a flight like we've been doing with you guys, they talk about Bible studies going on a hike. And the problem with going on hikes is that sometimes they can end very, very poorly. Um, either you end up in the wrong town, uh, so in other words, you land on the wrong airstrip, if I can meld it into my metaphor, uh, or more often than not, what happens is you end up wandering aimlessly around the bush and then it's time to go home. And so one of the things that they're trying to avoid um, are some of these pitfalls. So you can end up in the wrong place, you can just wander around aimlessly. You might even get to your destination, uh, but you may not have everybody with you. So you've been walking through the bush for three days and you get there and you're finally um, just, you're there, you're cheering, and then all of a sudden you realize that you've left three people behind. Um, or that little guy called Billy who just seems to get left around all the time. So one of the things that we want to be doing as we are leading Bible studies is making sure that as we go on this hike, everybody is with us at every stage. And so if you kind of think of a Bible study as a three-night hike, every night we need to make sure that everybody is there so that when we get to the last day and we get to the final destination, we've been checking along the way that everybody is keeping pace and is heading in the right direction. And so with that in mind, we want to talk about consolidating uh, what we've learned or where we're up to at that point in time. Um, now, there are two ways to do that. Um, one of them, um, and you need to do both, the first really is to do it along the way. So think of it as kind of like stepping stones or, or milestones or even gates that you have to go through. Um, think of these as kind of like the midway points that you just can just dip in and make sure that everybody's on board and everybody is keeping up. Um, and then the second way is uh, consolidating at the end and making sure that everybody has gotten to the right destination. And that's actually really key. And so summarizing is really important. I've, I've spoken in the past about listening to how people answer the application questions as a litmus test, as a way of diagnosing whether or not they know um, what it is the study is actually meant to be communicating to them. But another way is to actually speak it to them. Uh, this is obviously a less effective way because in you saying it to them, they still may not comprehend. And so the application question and their answer is still the most accurate way of determining whether they're on board. Um, but summarizing it at least allows you to have the final word and, and bring some of those threads together. Um, and it does a few things. Uh, it releases tension. Um, it gives clear conclusions. Um, and it ensures that people leave with the right idea and what, uh, knowing what to do about that right idea. Um, so essentially what you want to be doing is looking at the study and then thinking, what are the key points? What, what is the, the, the steps to get to my final point? What are the key things that they need to learn and, and in what order for them to arrive at the main point of the study? And those will be your gateways or your stepping stone points. Uh, and the reason we're talking about this actually this week is because of the study that we're doing, which is Hebrews 8 and 9. It is a massive study. Uh, it is a, probably the largest chunk of, of scripture that we will do um, in our time together. And so it's important that we make sure that people are keeping up, people aren't falling behind or getting lost in all the detail. 
So one of the things that I've been really happy to see um, from the study this, this week um, is from Aquia and Sam and Ando. They've actually structured it in such a way that you're doing it in chunks, one chunk after the next chunk after the next chunk. And one of the things you'll see as you look at it and prepare your own studies is that each chunk sort of needs to be grasped before you can move on to the next one. So the thing that I want you to be working on as you work through uh, next week's study is as you go through each of the questions, making sure that you're summarizing uh, the point at each because the study builds until it gets to the point where we finally find out how it is that Jesus and the new covenant that he mediates uh, is the means to deal with sin. So that's just something to be thinking about. Um, some other things to add to this, I think, just that kind of spill out of this, is when you summarize at the end, you want to be summarizing two things. You want to be summarizing the main point, and you want to be summarizing the key application. And the key application, remember, is virtually the answer to the big question. Uh, and the reason you want to have those two things down is because of what I said before. You want them to leave with the right idea and, and what that idea means for how they are to live their lives. Um, but here's the key thing when you summarize at the end. What you don't want to do is summarize your pre-prepared main point and key application point. Um, we don't want a pre-prepped answer. By all means, make one because it'll give you clarity. But when it comes to summarizing the study, you want to summarize it in terms of the group's discussion. And that means you need to listen and you need to be careful to remember the things that people say, who says them, and the, the words and the vocabulary and the means by which they say them. So that when you summarize them, you can do it in a personalized way such that the group goes, yes, that is the discussion we just had. And oh, I see how you're drawing those things together. Uh, and some of you who've been in Bible studies led by me will see me doing this intentionally, actually. I'll kind of at, at various points go, hang on, that's sort of like what Billy said, or that's sort of what like Sandra said. And then at the end, just building on those things and going, so what have we seen? Well, we've actually seen that such and such is the case. And just like Jeremy said, um, this is what we're supposed to do with it. So in other words, we are still handling contributions, but we're highlighting those contributions that are helpful um, and actually move us towards summary and clarity at the end of our study. So that's something to think about in terms of leading the group. Um, I will say this though, all of this discussion about summarizing uh, in the Bible study actually assumes that you are a leader and not just a facilitator in a Bible study. Now, I went over this last semester, but I think it bears repeating just so that we are completely clear on this. When we are in our studies, we are leaders of the studies. We aren't just discussion facilitators. That's the reason we call you leaders. That's why this podcast is called the EOC Leaders Podcast. We're concerned to make sure that you know that your task is not just to ask questions and get people to answer them. It's not just to generate discussion. Your task is to arrive at the main point, ask the big question, and get people thinking about how they can apply the passage correctly. Um, it's not just about taking the plane up in the air for a joyride and landing it anywhere. You have a destination, a particular place that you need to be, uh, and that is why you are just a, you are a leader, not just a facilitator. And the reason for that is because we believe that the Bible is not just a stimulus for opinion and thought. The Bible is true, and that means that the Bible can be misunderstood, and it also means that um, the Bible has something to say that in an absolute sense can't be debated or can't be applied in different ways. 
Um, it represents an absolute truth that God has revealed to us. And if we don't acknowledge that in our theology, then what ends up happening is Bible studies, Christian gatherings, whatever it is, they all descend into opinion sharing. And the problem with opinion sharing is your opinion is no better or greater than my opinion. What we need to do is appeal to authority to mediate between our opinions, and that's where the scriptures come in. Now, of course, that might make you wonder, hang on a minute, well, I'm a leader too, but what makes me think that I have the right answer? Uh, and if you're asking that question, then I think you're ahead of the rest of us because you need to be asking that question. Nothing makes you better than anyone else. Um, what allows you to teach the Bible with authority, I think, is one, the gifting of the Spirit, and two, training in how to read the Bible. Uh, if you can show people from the Bible why what you think the Bible says is true, uh, then people are much more inclined to listen. They'll actually regard you as somebody who has authority. Um, and it's also the reason why we train you. It's because we want you to be people who, as in 2 Timothy chapter 2, who handle the word of truth correctly. Um, and the way that you do that is to learn how to read it better and better, which is part of the reason we have these podcasts. And so therefore, what it means then is as a leader, rather just a facilitator, you need to not just ask questions, but make commentary along the way. Hence the reason why we need to consolidate and summarize as we go. Because that's one means by which you control the direction of the study and make sure that you reach the destination after that hike with everybody in the party arriving with you. So that's just leading the group. Cool. Let's shift gears and have a look at teaching the text. Thanks again to um, Ando and Aquina and Sam for this week's study in Hebrews 8 and 9. Um, really helpful stuff. What I'm going to do is I'm going to go through the overview box and then make a few comments about the passage itself. And that'll do us for today. So we probably actually end up being a lot shorter than usual. But hey, who knows? We always say that and we're always late. So we'll see how we go. Uh, if you haven't already filled out the overview box, now's the time to do it. So please pause the podcast, have a read, and then answer those four questions. What is the passage about? Why was the passage written? And then the main point of the study and the big question of the study. I'll let you do that now. Excellent. Now, assuming that you've done that, let's talk overview. Hebrews 8 to 9. Um, here is what the passage is about. Jesus mediates a new covenant, which is better than the old covenant, because it definitively deals with the people's sin. I'll read that again. Jesus mediates a new covenant, which is better than the old covenant, because it definitively deals with the people's sin. Now, the way that we arrive at this conclusion is to build to it by looking at the various parts of the passage. Uh, and it's a really good way to actually cover the study as a whole. So how about we do that? Let me outline to you the structure of chapters 8 to 9, uh, and hopefully by then you'll see why the what of the passage is, why it is, why it is. Um, having a look at Hebrews chapter 8, uh, you can divide the Hebrews chapter 8 into two sections like the study has, verses 1 to 6, and then verses 7 to 13 uh, will round off the chapter. And in each of those sections, whilst the two sections say a whole bunch of different things, they're establishing a few things for us. In chapter 8, 1 to 6, what is it doing? It's actually showing us that Jesus has a ministry that is analogous to the ministry of the Old Covenant. It acknowledges some similarities, but then it acknowledges some differences, such that in verse 6 what we see is that even though Jesus' ministry is patterned after the Old Covenant ministry, it is much more excellent than the Old 
as the covenant, he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. And so what we're seeing here is a foreshadowing that Jesus' ministry is patterned after the earthly ministry, but it's better. That's all we're told at this point, but that's all we need to know at this point. Because then we go on in verse 7 to verse 13, which is the second section, and we actually see why his covenant is better than the old covenant. And the answer is the old covenant had a fault. It was a critical flaw. And as we read uh, a, a quote that he gives us from Jeremiah chapter 31, which is a very significant part of the Old Testament for understanding the New Testament, we actually begin to see that, that God had, a, had an issue. And the issue wasn't with the covenant. It was with the people who were part of the covenant. And so in verse 8, he says he finds fault with them, which is interesting. Doesn't find fault with it, that is to say the covenant, he finds fault with them. And so he left asking the question, who is the them? Well, then he continues on. He goes, I'm going to make a new covenant with the house of Israel. Verse 9, not like the covenant I made with their fathers, because they did not continue in my covenant. In other words, the fault laid with them, the people, because they were unable to keep it. And so what we see is that the old covenant's critical flaw was the people that the covenant was made with. The problem was sin. And what we see, and you see this in question three of the study that you'll get this week, um, is that the new covenant that God promises in this quotation from Jeremiah, it fixes the problem. It changes the hearts of those who the covenant is with, such that when he makes the covenant, his laws will be on our minds, they'll be written on our hearts, uh, we will have no need to teach one another because we will all know God, and in verse 12, he will have shown mercy towards our iniquities and our sins will be remembered no more. And so essentially what's happening here is that the new covenant is promising to deal with sin. How does that happen? Well, that introduces us to chapter 9. Now, chapter 9 seems a bit strange because once you get into chapter 9, again, we look at it in two sections. Verses 1 to 10, it seems to just kind of go back to the beginning of chapter 8. We're talking about the new covenant, how it deals with sin, and then all of a sudden we're talking about tabernacles and lampstands and golden urns. And the purpose of chapter 9, verses 1 to 10, is to establish a pattern, which we will then see in the second half of chapter 9, in verses 11 to 28, um, as the fulfillment of that pattern or the surpassing of that pattern. And I've put this in your um, actual question in the Bible study because I think it's important for everybody in your group, not just you as leaders, to know this. Um, but what's actually happening here is a very, very clear example of typology. And what typology is, is exactly what it sounds. It's a type. It's the study of types. Now, what is a type? Well, essentially, it's a pattern. And in this case, the type or the, the, the blueprint is the Old Covenant and its ministry. And the anti-type is the formal term for the, the thing that fulfills the pattern um, or surpasses the pattern. And the anti-type in this case is the ministry that Jesus provides. And so what we see then is in chapter 9, 1 to 10, there is a type that is fulfilled, um, or sorry, that is outlined. And then verses 11 to 28, the anti-type is revealed and then demonstrated to not only um, copy, but fulfill. It's sort of like Zoolander, if you remember the walk-off scene, right? Um, they're supposed to copy and then elaborate, and that's exactly what Jesus does. He follows the pattern, but then he surpasses the pattern because what he is doing is greater than what the old covenant was doing. And so with that in mind, we get to our last section, which is uh, verses 11 through to 28, and we see that Jesus is able to do what the old covenant couldn't. 
Um, and so we, the key verses, I think, is in verse 13 and verse 14. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? In other words, the old covenant only ever works skin deep. It purifies our flesh, but it doesn't go deeper. Whereas Christ's sacrifice, his, his sacrifice, not just of heifers, but of himself, not just the blood of heifers, but his own blood, is able to cleanse us to our very core. In other words, it doesn't just make us look unsinful, it makes us unsinful. It's not skin deep, it goes all the way through. Um, and, and then as we kind of work through that, we actually see that reiterated verse 23 to 28. We see why that's the case, because Christ entering into the heavenly things, which were themselves modelled after the copy, um, the original type that we see on the ground, um, he enters into the true heaven and sacrifices himself in such a way that sin is definitively dealt with. And so all of that to say that the passage is about this. Jesus mediates a new covenant which is better than the old covenant because it definitively deals with the people's sin. Now, why was the passage written? Here's our second question. Um, this is a bit harder, and again, like we said last week, I'm struggling to get it specific because re the reality is that all of Hebrews is really saying one thing. Why, is the why was Hebrews written? So that we would hold fast to Jesus and draw near to him because whatever other option is on the table, he is better. In fact, he is the only option on the table that can deal with our problems. Uh, but I've tried to make it a bit more specific this week, so you can push back if you want to sit in a more general uh, why of the passage. But here's what I've written. Uh, to demonstrate to the Hebrews that their sin problem could only be dealt with under the new covenant. Now, the reason I've said it like that is because I'm trying to highlight the fact that the problem is sin. The author of the Hebrews has a lot to say about sin, which you already would have seen in the first seven chapters, but it's here that he really hits the ground running and he actually shows us that this critical problem cannot be dealt with by anything other than Jesus. So why was the passage written? To demonstrate to the Hebrews that their sin problem could only be dealt with under the new covenant. Now, before I move on to the main point and the question and wrap up today's podcast, I do want to make a point here. I've noticed in the last couple of weeks a tendency uh, by the guys who are writing the studies um, to answer the what of the passage by just giving it a title. So this week they said, what is the passage about? Jesus' superior covenant. And I want to say that doesn't tell me anything. It tells me there's a covenant and that it's superior and that it belongs to Jesus but it doesn't summarize the content of the passage. And so what I want is a statement, not a description or a title. I want something that I can hang things off, which is why I gave you this statement before about mediating a new covenant. It's better than the old because it definitively deals with people's sin. Um, so this is a heads up for those who will be writing in the future. Uh, heads up for those of you who will follow this Bible study writing method in the future, but not on campus. Um, don't, don't sit on, in titles. Don't be satisfied with headings. Instead, try to make a statement, a meaty statement, that uses the language of the passage and captures the main idea of the passage. So that's just some food for thought. Uh, let's have a look at the main point. Well, the main point is uh, derived from the what and the why. Um, and my main point is simply this. Only the new covenant can deal with our sin. And then uh, as a corollary, the big question of 
for Bible study um, is how or has Jesus' blood cleansed you from your sin? Has Jesus' blood cleansed you from your sin? Now you'll notice here that off the back of our discussion about application the other day, I've tried to make this personal. So has Jesus' blood cleansed you from your sin? Um, the problem with this question is that it is just a yes or no answer. Um, it doesn't lend itself to application. It sort of just lends itself to conversion, which again is not necessarily a bad big question. But if that is the only question we're ever asking, and we seem to be getting a few of these this semester with Hebrews, it becomes a bit of a problem. Uh, and so with that in mind, even though that is the big question, has Jesus' blood cleansed you from your sin? Um, the application questions that I've got at the end of the study are slightly different. So this time around, I've built onto the launching question, so you don't want to miss the launching question this week. Um, what different ways have you observed that people deal with their sin problem? And what I'm getting at there is, you know, they might go to, to Catholic Mass, they might do penance, uh, they might beat themselves up and then get off, um, uh, get up and, and then move on the next day, they might eat ice cream, whatever it is, uh, they might confess to other people. What we're trying to drive at is trying to figure out all the different ways people try to answer their sin problem. And then when we get to the application questions, we then ask the question, according to Hebrews 8 and 9, why are they inadequate? In other words, we want to bring to bear what the chapters in the Bible say about dealing with sin to, to show us that every other way is inadequate. And then the final application question, there's kind of two, one off the back of the other. We then make it more personal. What unhelpful ways do you deal with your sin? And then I ask you to choose one and then answer the question, how does Jesus' work in the new covenant challenge you to respond differently? Uh, and the value of that, I think, is that you're actually applying the key information you've learned in the passage to think about how you can be responding to your own sin. And it's open-ended enough so that a non-Christian can go, you know what, I've got to repent. But a Christian can look at that and go, you know what, I've forgotten that Jesus is my high priest and I need to draw near to him. I need to confess. I need to acknowledge. I need to accept. I need to be okay. I can stop feeling guilty. Um, any, any one of those things. And so as a Bible study leader... Um, remember that you can lead the charge in this and actually share yourself um, and do it in such a way that uh, you can model to them how you want it to respond. Uh, but I think that'll do us for this week. So thank you for listening. Um, leading the group, remember to consolidate and summarize along the way and then at the end. And then in terms of teaching the text, make sure that we land the plane with an application that hits home. Uh, but how about I pray for you guys as you prep and lead and I'll catch you around on campus. Our Father in heaven, thank you so much for Hebrews 8 and 9 and for the way that it shows us that we have a sin problem and that it can only be dealt with by Jesus. Lord, thank you so much that you sent him to enter into heaven itself uh, and offer himself as our sacrifice once for all so that our sin could be wiped away and that we could be with you uh, inheriting the promises uh, and eagerly wait for you to come and claim us and save us. And so, Father, I pray for these guys as they prep that they'll have that clearly imprinted in their minds and that those they lead um, will be able to understand that too and so find freedom in Christ's sanctification of us. We thank you for that and we pray in his name. Amen. Catch you later, guys.